Welcome back to Outside the System. In this episode, I spoke with Eric Jorgensen, the author of the anthology of Balaji. Similar to his book about Naval Ravikanth, Eric compiled the best of Balaji's wisdom and made it easily accessible. This episode ranges widely, and we talked about technology cycles, Bitcoin, how regulation affects innovation, books, and much more. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to pick up a copy of the book using the link in the show notes. A share on social or review on Spotify or Apple is also super helpful in spreading the word. And if you're getting value from outside the system, you can also support financially using Bitcoin on the Fountain Podcast Player or any other podcast app that supports podcasting 2.0. Let's get into the episode. Eric, great to have you back on the show. Good to be back, man. Feels like home. Let's do this. <laughs> well, I think we have now done, this is going to be our third episode together. And then we did two made, or we did one made you think together. Nat and I covered your book separately on made you think. So that's, that's like a pseudo Eric episode. Yeah. Then we have an outside the system episode about more about your like investing philosophy. And um, I think what you were probably working on maybe like a year ago. And today yeah. we're talking about the anthology of Balaji, which has been in the works for a while. And you teased it actually in your Outside the System episode. Yeah, we did. We That was a cool conversation because it was really the middle. Like I did a ton for the Naval launch and then now doing a ton for the Balaji launch. And that one was just kind of like the dead middle where I was just like in the middle of the maze <laughs> on this book and doing a bunch of investing. So that was a fun, that was a fun conversation. To have. Yeah. And actually now reading this book, I see so many themes in the investing work that you started doing. And yeah. at one point I thought the entire fund was based on where's my flying car, which is an amazing book, uh, which you put me on. Uh, Dude, honestly, but, it's and not it kind far of off. Is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you should have just called it like flying car ventures or something like that. That would have been cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would. There's a, there's so many good like venture uh, venture funds are so fun to name like because anything goes right. You can just accelerationist fund like we went for like a stupid pun name, um, of which course. is a lot of fun. But yeah, you can like um, like Meta Cartel is one I heard that I was like, oh, that's so sick. Like it's just a fun <laughs> thing to name. Mithril Capital, like Peter Thiel deal. Come on. Yep. Yeah, there's so much like symbolism too. You can like throw into it. Um, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, so you, so, I mean, yeah, the investing work you were doing and then I didn't realize this until reading this biology book, it, unless I misinterpreted this, it seems like he has read that book and recommends it as well. Right. It seems to be like a guiding philosophy for biology. Yeah, actually I read, so I read where's my flying car right when it came out from Stripe press. And so I thought it was like a new book and I was just like, um, I saw somebody share a, like just a page of a highlighted page of it on Twitter. And I was, it was a paragraph, a few paragraphs toward the end of the book about this, like nuclear powered flying city that was like the scale of New York that was self-perpetuating with cheap energy and it just constantly like flying around earth with like a full population of millions of people and everything it needed to be self-sufficient. And I was like, that's fucking awesome. I have to read this book. And so I picked up the book, read the whole thing, loved it. And then was like, you know who would like this? Balaji. 
and I like send him the <laughs> thing. I was like, dude, have you ever read this? Like you would love it. And he's like, oh yeah, I read it two years ago. And I was like, it just came out. And then I went and looked up the <laughs> author. The author had self-published like a janky, poorly designed PDF version of it on his own website a few years ago. And like Apology had read that. And then, <laughs> then the rest of us found out about it. But yeah, Where's My Flying Car? Incredible book. Um, I recommend, I've gifted it to probably 10 different people, maybe more. I did an interview with the author on my podcast and I have a, a episode of notes where I just like rant about how awesome it is and read through some of my favorite things. It's not the easiest read in the world, but it will totally change your perspective on it's, it's probably like the 201 level that I actually tried to make the anthology of biology, like the 101. Like if you like, if you read the anthology of biology and love it and like get excited about the possibilities, like definitely pick up where's my flying car. It's an awesome kind of like expansion from that. Yeah. And how would you even describe the anthology of biology versus maybe like the Naval Manac? <laughs> yeah. The Almanac of Naval. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think they're both now having read both, right? I think they are actually quite different. Um, because they're obviously different people and they talk about different things. They're similar in definitely some ways as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, I guess in your own words, like how, what would you describe uh, the differences and like the, and maybe is the audience the same or would you view the audience as being a different potential type of reader? I think there'll be overlap in the audience, but they'll it'll probably have different kind of reaches. Um, I mean, the, the format is very similar. Like if, if the things you loved about the Nivalmanac were like, the density of information and the richness and the fact that you like highlight every page and it was like a short, easy read, but full of good ideas. Like I tried to really shoot for the same format here. It still has awesome illustrations by Jack Butcher. We still have the kind of like tweets that make it easy to skim. Um, there's still a huge recommended reading chapter at the end. And so, you know, in, in sort of the same way, my, my guiding light for these, like the goal of the project is to make a book that feels like, sitting down for a long, like one-on-one -on -one dinner with Naval or with Balaji and be, you know, you're at your best and they're at their best. And you just get to ask all of the questions that you want to ask. And they are at their most articulate and just give you clear, concise answers to the things that you're most curious about. Um, and so I really filter for their most evergreen, their most widely applicable and their most important ideas. And that's a huge curation process that goes from like, collecting everything they've ever recorded or written or appeared on building a giant spreadsheet. It's a million plus words of source material and then filtering and categorizing and organizing and distilling and rewriting and editing and just compiling it all down to this like 50,000 words of really tight, really clear, really useful information. Um, I think the, I mean, obviously the ideas are very different. Um, you know, Naval's kind of most timeless, most broadly applicable principles are really about wealth and happiness. Um, you know, learning to think, um, Balaji certainly has some on learning to think. I, th I th think the whole kind of truth section would, um, be considered that. And there's some at the end about starting a company and building a successful project, um, that fit that category. Really, the the first section, the, I think the most important section is really about technology, which Naval sort of touches on. And he's clearly a technologist and a builder. And, you know, that's a huge piece of leverage, like all of that. But Balaji really articulates very well, like the, the critical, like moral importance of technology and the advantages of like 
how hard it is to get ahead in any other way other than using technology well and the benefits that come from it. And a lot of things that we've started to take for granted just because we have all existed in this kind of age of abundance, um, which is really extreme compared to the 200 years before. But also let's remember it's nothing compared to what's coming next. And we have to keep prioritizing investing in technology and respecting it and appreciating it and working on it because it does not get better on its own. Um, so yeah, different ideas. So true. I think it'll end up in different corners of the world. Um, but if you liked Naval, if you like the Naval book, I think you will like this book also. Um, and I think it's a reasonable, it, it, it answers a bunch of questions that the Naval book raises. You know, if, if the Naval book is very like philosophical strategy level, this is a little more like tactical, practical, like how do I go from leverage is important, um, to literally starting a company? Like there's not a lot of clear to do's, you know, coming out of a Naval book, this book, I think you can put down and literally change how you do your job, like immediately. Totally. Yeah. And I think they're, their philosophies are aligned, but I would definitely not say they have like a hundred percent overlap. Like I think Balaji is better at pushing the envelope. Not that Naval isn't, oh, yeah. but at least the way that, yeah, at least what he like talked about was more. So like there's one line that I highlighted, which I think is worth talking about. And I think highlights this. So uh, Balaji, like you, you have a, a line in here, which is um, there's obviously value to tradition. People say something is Lindy to mean it's been proven by the test of time or existed for a long time. But of course, there's a tension between tradition and innovation. Going to the moon wasn't Lindy. It was just awesome. This is a tension within humanity itself. Like, I think that's freaking like, it's a brilliant line. And it's also, it's also like a tension, which I, I personally struggle with, I think, because like, I do you know, have a lot of respect for things that are Lindy and sometimes maybe too much respect for things that are Lindy mm. um, as opposed to, you know, maybe like pushing the envelope a little bit because maybe it's like, why do we do it that way? <laughs> maybe there's a reason yeah. why we could do it better now than we could before. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like the Naval book or at least Naval's philosophy in general seems to skew further on the Lindy side and Balaji is like slightly further. And I think they both have a healthy respect for the other side as well. And they both <laughs> operate on the other side as well. But it's Balaji is more like much further on like the innovation side and like, let's try cool stuff and see what happens. Um, yeah. As opposed to like, you know, tradition being like the chief ideal. I think that's, um, I think that's fair. I think there's probably nuance around there's, there's for sure. Nuance. Nuance, right? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're like, cause Naval talks a lot more about philosophy, which is like a very lindy yeah. topic, you know, where, where you get into, um, and like, that's not Balaji's thing. Like Balaji studies a lot for of sure. history and you'll see him talk about technology through the scope of history, which I think is a really interesting and helpful thing to think of. Like, um, there's a whole chapter of like, uh, starting small and finding frontiers and it goes through some of what were the startups of the past. And like, we don't tend to think about like, how did Eli Lilly, the like giant pharmaceutical conglomerate, like get started? And it was like a guy in the back of a drugstore just like making up new drugs when that was, when there was no FDA and like oil right. refiner, oil, oil refining started as a technology getting built in somebody's apartment living room in San Francisco. <laughs> like that, that's crazy. Right. Um, that's, but like the garage wild. startup never goes out of style. Um, yeah, there's, they are very different archetypes, right? Like, I think, um, you know, if, if Naval is the monk, like, and Balaji is the warrior, like, that gives you a good sense of um, kind of a little bit more of their worldviews. 
And, you know, to your point about Bology just being out there, I think it's a really, Mark Andreessen said this of Bology, and I think it's the most helpful context to come into this book with. That is, when Bology is wrong, it's because he over-extrapolates, not under-extrapolates. Like, mm. he takes an idea to its fourth, fifth, sixth, like, level order effects. He takes it to 11 when, like, maybe in reality the effect peters out at, like, a five or a six. Um, but most people can only think that is two. So if you spend some time with yep. a guy who thinks to 11, like you'll naturally maybe get to a three or a four and you'll be way more right about way yep. more stuff. Yeah. I think that there's nothing that exemplifies that more than, you know, a lot of people probably heard of Balaji for the first time either during COVID or I, and, and he did overextend, I think on some of his COVID extrapolations early on before I think people really knew what was going on. And then the second thing, which is more recent, was his Bitcoin going to a million dollars within three months uh, mm-hmm. uh, prediction, which to be fair to him, I actually, I think he got the trajectory right, probably. Uh, get, like, I think his his like logic, actually, when you, when you really, I forget which podcast had it, like a two hour interview with him asking him to back it up mm. during that time. And like he gave, and I'll dig it up and put it in the show notes, but he did give a actually very, I think it was probably bankless. Um, He gave a very logical defense of the idea. And actually, I think like philosophically, he's probably on the right track. I think he just probably got the timing wrong. So to Eric, to like your point, it's like he probably got the degree right. He just overestimated how quickly other people would get there, right? Because a market at the end of the day is based on other people getting to like a similar conclusion very quickly. Or yeah. getting it to hit his timeline would have had to be very quickly. Yeah. And it's a very interesting, like, um, you see that a lot, actually. Like, uh, you, Elon's um, story, and I'm, I'm like, that is my next book. Like, I'm doing a compilation for him also. Um, so, like, you see that a lot. Ooh, He's got a great pre-orders, line. Pre-orders coming up. Nah. <laughs> Coming soon. Um, <laughs> coming soon-ish. The last one both took three years, so I'm hoping I can speed it this one up a little. Um, you Come see on, that you a lot. He, now. He's got a great line. I think it was on the front of like, I, I never know what's a real magazine cover anymore. But he's like, I'm I'm rarely wrong, but I'm never punctual. It was like Elon's line about like new technologies and delivering on stuff. He's like, I always deliver. It's almost never when I first said I would because it's hard to predict this stuff. And what you see in these like technologists <laughs> is who are truly living in the future is usually this insane optimism that gets them to jump off the cliff in the first place. Like you got to believe you're not going to spend 20 years on the fucking thing to jump off the cliff. You're like, ah, we can do that in four. <laughs> yeah. And then four years in, you're like, ah, shit, maybe it's six. Yep. And when you like, and then it turns into seven, but seven <laughs> is way better than 20. And like 20 is what it would have been if you said it was going to be 20. Or maybe if you said it was 20, it's going to be 50. I don't know. But yeah, it's a right. it is a common thing, and then people show up on Twitter and they're like, "Oh, Bology was wrong." And it's like, is he wrong or is he just like off by twelve months? Like, or was he wrong or was he off by like, you know, he said it was going to be four x and it was three x. Like, was it even on your radar before he put it on your radar and made you start thinking about it? Like, so that you know, in in from Bology's perspective, and we've talked about this. He's like, you know, I, I want to. The, the point is to call attention to it and like create a conversation around it and get people to think about a thing that they're not thinking about. The point is not like Bology to be a hundred percent correct on everything that he ever does necessarily. Um, nobody can be, nobody can make that number of predictions and like be that right about any of them or about all of them at once. Um, totally. 
but yeah, it's, people use the wrong scorecards. I think when they're like, you know, talking water cooler, talking shit about some of these things. Yeah. I think, I mean, that happened with the Bitcoin thing for sure. And I think, um, you know, there were a lot of people I think who didn't dive into his, his thinking or his like, yeah, his like uh, all you supporting see is the work. first tweet. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it's like, Oh, see, it didn't happen. Like, uh, I think it's worth if you if if you were one of those people listening who had that reaction, I would definitely recommend digging into why he thought that. And you know, we've done a few other episodes on this podcast. I think that are interesting supporting material by non like people that aren't biology who would say similar things. So like we had Nick Batian who um, had wrote a book called Layered Money uh, mm. about <clears throat> you know the, there's like different levels of money, and in his opinion. You know, I mean, in the past, right, central banks and even today, central banks still actually use gold to back up their, their, you know, they use various hard assets to back up their own money supply, even though it's not directly tied to, you know, we're not a gold backed dollar anymore, but there are central banks around the world have hard assets. Hmm. His philosophy, his point is Bitcoin is a harder asset and much more easily transportable than any other of these hard assets that are out there backing central banks. Anyway, that's a, a good episode to dive into. And then actually there's a point uh, which is also worth talking about, uh, Eric, which we did another episode with Alex, this guy named Alex Svetsky, um, mm. who has an interesting writer in the Bitcoin space <clears throat> and has a really interesting philosophy called the three generation theory of Bitcoin, where we're kind of at the tail end of generation one right now. And I think he was saying generation one will go on for a few more years of basically people who came across Bitcoin at some point over, you know, and it's, I mean, it's really only <clears throat> what, like 14 years old at this point. Um, you know, so, so it's still kind not of like even. a teenager and I, yeah. yeah, not even really. Yeah. So his point is like once, uh, so our kids are going to know that like, oh, my parents were like the first generation into Bitcoin. The grandkids like of our generation are like not going to know a world in which Bitcoin didn't exist as like, like it's just going to be something that's old. Like think about anything that came out when your grandparents were, you know, teenagers or in their twenties and you'll be like, Oh, that thing is so old. Like it wouldn't matter if it was your grandparents (laughs) or your great, great grandparents. It's the same. It's just just all the same to you. It's just history. Yes. And Balaji makes a point in here, uh, you know, where you say it, it says by 2040, everyone under 30 will have never known a world without Bitcoin. It may as well be gold. That's the long-term case for replacement. Yeah. Um, and I think like, an, there's definitely some something to that. I like that. I mean, that's an under... Um, I like any perspective that just takes such a long view that most people aren't willing to look at. You know, they look at the Bitcoin price year over year and they're like, ah, see, Bitcoin's right. not a thing. It's not growing. And you're like, is yep. that the point? Is it the point of it for it to be higher than it was last year? Like, that's what a lot of people right. got into it for, <laughs> honestly. Um, but no, something that's true. In my, I mean, yeah. Like, I bet everybody has a version of this in their family, but like, I remember hearing stories as a little kid of like, um, you know, we have a little like cabin in the woods. Um, and I remember my dad telling me, he was like, your grand, when your grandfather bought this, you know, land, it was five cents an acre. And then now it's whatever. It, like, there's always those things of like, what could your grandfather have bought that would have changed your family's like whole trajectory over 70 years. <laughs> And and so I kind of always have that in the back of my mind. I'm like, what's a nickel now that will be five hundred dollars in the future? And fifty years isn't that long of a time. I mean, it's a long time in your life, but it's not a long time in time. Um, 
So if you can, if you can sneak some of those in, sneak some nickels in, like there's no reason, you know, <laughs> if, if you look at it as like, yes, every central bank in 50 years is going to hold Bitcoin, um, then that's, that's a different kind of thesis. Yeah, and and Alex actually uh, in the episode he gets into this, but like he gets into frequent fights with like Bitcoin maxis who yes. predict. Actually, ironically, I don't think he got in a fight with Vology, but I think like he gets mad at that type of prediction because it happens like every day in the Bitcoin world, where like some Bitcoin person oh, will say, like, "Oh, it's heading to a million by the end of the year." Like, and he always gets mad at that, saying like that like you are vastly underestimating the amount of effort time and like just inertia that's going to be needed for this to become like a global like if you look at the market cap if it's a million dollars per per bitcoin it is going to be probably the biggest asset class i think at that point oh, yeah. uh, and so for that for that to happen like it's not something that's just gonna like ma- like accidentally happen like it, it's it's a yeah. the software it's a long has to game. update for billions of people which is another like um yeah. <clears throat> yeah. right there's a great book i'm sure you've read uh technological revolutions in financial capital by carlotta perez that like traces the pattern of i haven't read oh it. no it's it's a good um no it's a little like technical economisty, but it is she she did it spend i think a lot of her career studying the phenomenon of like new innovate new innovations coming to market how they're capitalized the like psychological trajectory that they go through of being like overhyped and then undervalued and then slowly deployed and then becoming mainstream and it's just a reminder that like for any big technology we're still only part of the way through this well we're most of the way through it for the internet um but we're in like the back half for the internet we're still actually kind of early on mobile we're still very very early on ai we're still very early on crypto like these are 50 year cycles before they actually become truly pervasive and so you see really high growth rates in crypto like higher even than you did for early internet for a bunch of good reasons but that doesn't mean it's gonna like maybe it's a 45 year cycle instead of a 50 year cycle you know like having the patience to see these things play all the way out um and and to apologies like got a section well idea of a section in the book on biology of biology's ideas that is like political truths versus technical truths versus economic Mm, truths and i think it's like this is exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about for bitcoin is like a political truth is somewhat arbitrary but it's a thing that it is a consensus belief like when we all vote decide who a new president is and decide that you know bob is the president instead of rick like We've updated that truth, but it's a consensus among humans. An alien landing would have no idea who the president is. And Bitcoin is like a similar thing. If we spend 40 years uploading like the software that Bitcoin is the hardest asset, the hardest money to billions of people and they believe it, it becomes true. It's a political truth that can be created, which is why you see so many like so many people out there advocating for Bitcoin, right? Like it's this like mind virus that... um, is what gives it its value, like the consensus belief. It's an, it's a kind of a remarkable thing, but there's no technical truth necessarily behind it. Uh, so we have to like, this is why you see people fighting so hard for it. Totally. Yeah. And that's so true for, uh, I mean, I, I think like one thing that highlights that is revolutions. Like, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, it's like the collapse of confidence in a regime is really basically what like a rebel is after. Uh, yeah. And and there's one scene that like in um, it was in Godfather two, 
that always like strikes me is when they when you know when they uh it's like new year's eve and they're at like the presidential palace in cuba and that you know it's like they basically looked like the war was going fine against the rebels and all of a sudden basically like the president resigns and the whole regime collapsed and it's like it didn't take actually they didn't have to invade havana and take over havana to like win that war it just basically yeah. had to get a certain confidence level like they had to get the current regime below a, uh, a certain confidence level and now they you know they, they're just they lost the popular support or the consensus support to your point uh that they would need to, to have power and i think that's that's so true with like many things um you know politics is def- like this whole political truth idea versus hard truth or scientific truth thing it, there's so many things in life that we just take that are we take as truths, but they're actually if you really dig in, not really like truths of nature. They are truths yeah. of humanity, which even can change. Scientific, even scientific truths are. Yes, you know, that's absolutely. the distinction. Like between uh, one of the first questions I get from people sometimes, like, what's the difference between a scientific truth and a technical truth? It's like the technical is like the mathematical, like one plus one equals two. Um, scientific is a, an asymptotic approach to a truth. Like we are always in the process of proving or disproving a hypothesis that we have. And like true scientists are never hundred percent sure about anything. Um, and humanity and it's even very recent past believed devoutly in things that turned out to not be true. And that is absolutely going to be true of our age. It's just not obvious to us yet. Um, we just don't you know, know what it is. Yeah. What incredibly popular truth that everyone believes is obvious is going to turn out to be obviously wrong in, in 10 years or in 50 years or in a hundred years. And that question should haunt us. Um, and my suspicion is that it's probably somewhere in the like health and nutrition space, um, you know, like, <laughs> like smoking and sugar in the recent past. Great segue, actually. Um, so the there's one one. Uh, actually, I'm trying to figure out where I want to start, but there's one that there's one line I pulled out, which is self measurement isn't n equals one science, small sample size. It is t equals infinity science, long time frame. This yields unprecedented personal health data. Smart food companies will use this data to deliver data driven personalized nutrition. Like, I think we even touched on this in our earlier episode, but th- this is kind of like the holy grail for health and nutrition companies. And there is one company actually uh, in the work at TrueMed that we've interacted with and um, is, is kind of doing this like at a very early stage. I think we're in like, you know, first or second inning of this, like maybe not even mm-hmm. second inning, like we're in one out in the first inning kind of like time frame. Yeah. Um, they basically integrate, it's called Elo. Uh, it's like a smart nutrition company for basically protein and supplements. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, they re- basically they ship you like a monthly blend based on your activity level from the previous month. What types of activities you were doing, right? Are you lifting? Are you running? Are you like doing marathons? Your nutrition needs are different. Your supplementation needs are different if you're running a marathon versus your, you know, benching 315. Like, yeah, very different types of you know nutrition products that you need, and it ties in with like Whoop and like Aura and like all these different wearable devices. So it even then gives you a dosage recommendation post workout and is like, oh, you were looks like you had an extra hard workout today. Like have one and a half scoops, not one scoop. Right? It's like yep. it's it's like super early days, right? They're not like formulating like three D printer style like on the spot, but it is. 
it is like the early, early version of what Balaji is talking about. Yeah, there's such a clear like this is a company I've wanted to exist for a while, and it's it's a it's a hard, but if you start simple, you can ladder your way up, right? If you've gone even a little bit of the way down this kind of like nutrition, like fitness diet rabbit hole, you see this like increasing level of fidelity. So you could start with like, um, really just a smart scale and getting someone. In, uh, and delivering like the right macros to somebody to get their weight where you want it, right? Like that's the very yeah. <laughs> most simple. And then you go to like body fat percentage and um, a, a much like more specific level of nutrition, like not just macros, but like nutritious food. And then you start doing blood tests and go to like trying to get their micronutrients and their supplementation right. And then it's like, all right, I want a wearable on you like 24 seven and blood tests and like monthly clinic visits. And you can really like, I mean, this is all almost Brian Johnson as a service, not quite as longevity focused as just like health, fitness, diet. Like I, I bet there's an enormous gap between like what my optimal diet and nutrition is. And it's different than yours. And it's different than it was for me three years ago, but I bet I'm more than 50% off whatever would be perfect. And I bet there's something like, I bet getting close to that, like getting to the 80 plus percent or 90 plus percent is like a multiplier. There's like something approaching like superhuman compared to the average like diet and nutrition regimen. Um, like I, how, what does that unlock? Like what is it, what, what kind of multiplier effect is that on your energy, your attention, your productivity, like your mood, like the whole rest of your life gets better if you get that nailed down. It's just so much work to do all that stuff. So like you can plug me into a feedback system that like helps me nail that without having to like do all of the chemistry and math and spreadsheets that go into like even getting your macros right, honestly, is work. Um, but like, I feel like you're going to start with like only a few nerds that really, really care about that kind of stuff. But eventually I feel like people will come around um, and you can kind of go down the you know, the innovation curve, innovation cost curve, um, and get things cheaper Dude, and for, I, for the mass. I, I have this, uh, theory to, to the point of like, you're only going to get a few nerds who actually do this. I have this theory that there's actually like more science to be had or like gains to be had from a, a health and maybe not longevity standpoint. And you'll see why I, I say that in a second. Like, but definitely from like an overall health optimization, whether it's energy or uh, body weight and things like that, from the fitness community, then from the medical community, like, oh, yeah. you know, yes. call it bro science or whatever you want to call it. It's like they're actually self-experimenting and tracking and like there's objective measurements that they're using. Like they are actually doing science. Uh, it doesn't mean them. like, <laughs> it, exactly. No, no, yeah. no, exactly. But I think there is, there is like a lot of, um, when you think about the frontier, right. Concept that yeah. Balaji talks about that is actually, I think like the frontier as opposed to like in a laboratory, um, you know, it's just truly more of like a wild west in all the good and bad ways in the yeah. fitness community yeah. uh, as opposed to like in the scientific lab community. Yeah. We hundred percent need both. Um, yeah, it's, yep. it's really interesting. It's how little doctors know about nutrition, but also how <laughs> brilliant they are about some others, right? Like, so um, totally, I, I have had that revel. And then I ended up in the hospital this year for some bullshit that sucked. But um, and the doctor was like, are you doing any of these like 20 things that are popular among like young men who are into fitness that can totally like destroy some of your organs and long-term health? And I was like, Luckily, no, 
but I definitely know people that are fucking around with some of those things that are like short term optimization. <laughs> what were those twenty things? I'm very it's, curious. Um, what those twenty things are. I'm I'm overstating. Maybe that. you don't have to give all twenty. I overstated but that curious number. What like the yeah. There's definitely like um. So we talked through different like different supplements that are processed by different organs that are can like basically create um very unnatural over like overstraining of different overload words, of like yeah. that's processed in the kidney that's processed in the liver like those three things are processed in the liver if you take all of those you're overtaxing your liver every day um and you know and that's before you even get into like oh you're doing testosterone replacement therapy or any of the stuff that like messes with so a, a shocking of, number of people that do that which yeah, yeah. It does especially in I mean, there was, I forget what the company was, but there was some startup that I saw that was doing that and kind of targeting like people in their third, like early thirties, late twenties. And I was like, that seems like, seems like there's a lot of other things that person could do at that age. I remember Nat going this. in on them on the internet. It was like, oh, yeah, what are yeah. you guys doing? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, it is so far out of my wheelhouse. Like I do not have strong opinions on it other than like, I appreciate, I really just appreciate the like people it, at the frontier just not like, Lindy. running experiments. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, yeah. It's not Lindy, but, but yeah. Um, no, God bless the, what like, were the kinds of other things though? Were they all like, were they, were they things like hormone stuff or was it like, you know, something as simple as like creatine or like something was, along those it was lines? Stuff, it was even simple, like over the counter stuff. That's like, are you doing yep. this? Are you doing this? Are you mixing this? Um, and there's also very little work done or at least a common understanding about synergistic effects or antagonistic effects of, yeah. of different things. It's like each thing in isolation might be okay, yeah. but you mix these three things and it's like, they're all processed at the same point. I think there's, and there's very that's little where the actually, doctors uh, are really like awesome. Yeah, exactly. They're great at that. Yeah. I think like common knowledge is, is actually, there's very little, uh, biology and chemistry knowledge. I think by like the average person. Yeah. Um, even as it relates to like foods, right? Like certain foods don't interact well with each other. And it's like, you don't think about, you're just like, oh, this food's healthy and this food's healthy. So I yeah. don't know why I can't eat the two of them together. There's <laughs> a fast, um, Far Farb Nivy, um, is like worth a follow on this, uh, on, on Twitter and on, uh, air chat. He shares a bunch of stuff there and he's, he's done a lot of these like simple Lindy, like research into what's nutritious what's healthy what's not like like one thing is super simple is like you chew vegetables like you have to chew vegetables a really long time to maximally like digest them and get the nutrition out of them but meat is the opposite like meat is designed to be digested you're something like most people don't think about that or don't know it like don't drink water with your meals because it dilutes like your your stomach acid so it makes it slower to digest and you like i was like oh like it, there's just all kinds of stuff like that. That's like such simple. It was probably folk wisdom that everybody knew at some point that we just lost. <laughs> Nobody pays attention yep. to it anymore. Like, why do I feel shitty? And it's like, oh, well, you're not paying attention to the things that go into your body and how they go in. And there's a, there's a biologism about that too. That's like that I had never thought of before. Um, I still don't, I still don't know the answer to it, but he's like, do we know how the actual molecules, like you, you are what you eat right? In a very literal sense, but where like trace the path, like you ate a chicken breast, you ate a piece yes. of broccoli, like where in your body <clears> does <throat> it go? What pieces go to what places? Um, and how much comes from the air? Like I remember Richard, there's a clip of Richard Feynman talking about that. Uh, the trees don't grow out of the ground. They grow out of the air. Most of the matter that makes up a tree comes from the carbon in the air, which is fucking crazy, but it's also oh. true of us. Also like when you lose weight, you all, exhale exactly. that weight like, away. I, Yep. 
it's crazy, right? Like people don't think I didn't know that till like maybe a few months ago. I forget it came up. Uh, it came up on Made You Think. I forget what we were talking about, but and why it came up. But like Nat brought that up, and I was like, "There's no way that's true," and looked it up. <laughs> totally true. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Which you know, it's it's easy to uh, scoff at like breath work as a practice compared to like, oh, I'm supposed to be lifting weights and like. But like maybe breath work is like a much bigger component than people realize. Yeah. Like if you breathe or how you sleep at night, like if you're breathing mm -hmm. properly at night, probably is massive uh, improvement if you can breathe better, better while you sleep. Yep. Um, changing, changing gears like a, a, a little bit. Um, has this book influenced, like I guess I'm, it's like a chicken and egg problem that I'm getting to. <laughs> Has working on this book influenced your like the kinds of things you invest in out of your fund, or were you were you interested in this book, writing this book because of the things you were investing in your fund? Like, what kind of came first, or like how have they played off each other as a yeah, result of doing I this? A hundred percent. It's obviously not like the first thing that got me excited about it, but like you can you can see. Yeah, you can see my career in the books that I'm writing. Like you can see how they affect each other. Um, so like, coming out of the Naval book, I was like, Oh, okay. Leverage capital, like technology, freedom of schedule. Um, and so I started this venture fund and in reading, oh, where's my flying car and in writing the anthology of biology, both of them and, and studying more of the history of venture capital also did this. But like pushed me so much further towards truly high tech, high technical risk investments. Um, there is a, you know, the, the world of things that's referred to as venture capital these days is insanely broad, incredibly broad, and basically accommodating like includes every kind of software investment, um, which is not really what venture capital is, right? Like the found the core of venture capital is about frontier technical risk stuff with huge markets, transformative potential that needs like risk capital to go into it. It's not about like SaaS apps, re like really software has great margins. You can get good returns in it. And um, there is innovative software that is getting built that does have technical risk and huge applications. Um, I'm not saying software is not a good thing to invest in, just that, you know, the, the way Bology, the, the very first chapter of the book, because I think it's the most important is building what money can't buy. He says, startups are about building what money can't buy today. Like a few years ago, that was a web browser, an iPhone, um, you know, an electric car, a ticket. And today, you, like, you can't buy a ticket to Mars. You can't buy a medical tricorder. You can't buy, you know, perfect personalized nutrition. It is about adding to humanity's capabilities. And so if you are going to found a startup company, like, I think that's the bar that you should be shooting for. Like anything else is just a little less ambitious. Um and it's a helpful test and it's now a filter that I, you know, not every investment in our portfolio probably passes that. I think a lot of them do, but it depends on your perspective and, you know, how close you are to an industry. But like, um, you know, we've invested in these like uh, drone construction companies. We've invested in um, non-invasive mind controlled robotic limbs. We've invested in nuclear fission micro reactors, like tr truly like high technical risk edge of capable, enormous market, like world changing innovations when they reach this kind of incredible scale. Um, and definitely spending a lot of time with this book made me respect that more value it more. I think it made me a better investor. And 
I'm excited to see like I I'm most excited to see the impact that this book can have over like 10 or 20 years on how people choose careers and what to work on. Like I hope that it raises everyone's bar for what they're capable of and what they contribute to. And I can't wait to like fund people who read this book when they were like 19 and it changed like what they studied and what they worked on. And like, they call me at 25 and I, and like have this insane optimistic worldview and they're like, this is my thing. Like I'm going to spend decades like building this thing and adding this capability to humanity. And I'll be like, hell yeah, let's do it. Like, <laughs> how can I help? Yeah. And I think, uh, and I don't know if I have too many, too many of these people listening to the, to my podcast, but if there is <laughs> somebody listening who's every like, day, Hey, minute by minute. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, I, I, I think there's a lot of people like the, 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 um, archetype that you just mentioned listening to this podcast. I was referring to what I'm about to say, which is even if you don't view yourself as a builder, let's say you work for like, I don't know, the FDA or something, right? Mm. Maybe this book is still valuable because I think it's, it makes a really good moral case for innovation, not just a money-making case, which is, I think, unfortunately, what a lot of times in the startup world and the venture capital world, how these uh, the argument is made for these investments. Like, wow, we can make so much money if this scales. It's like, yes, that is true. But I think Balaji makes a really good distinction between like, mo like money is clearly not what motivates him. Uh, it like comes out very, very clearly. And, and, you know, he's done very well, but uh, I don't think that's what motivates him. I think the moral case for innovation that he makes is, is fascinating. So like even the ability to save people time extends their, their lifespan, basically their, their lifespan that they can spend doing other things that they want to do. There's a moral argument for for doing that, and and in where's my flying car? He made the same argument. It's like if instead of taking five hours to fly from you know New York to L.A., it was one hour, right? That like number one, that makes it just so much easier to move across the country. Uh, but number two, it's like that's four less hours. You're just sitting in an airplane, and that's great. You just got four hours of your life back. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a moral argument to be made for a lot of this stuff. And obviously, when we talk FDA, I mean, you're talking about improving people's lifespans. And I think it's important, even if you're not a builder, to read books like this, because like, if you're, especially as you're talking, Eric, like, you know, you can't wait to fund people 20 years in the future. I can't wait. And if we can live in a world where like even, you know, people whose job it is to regulate have the same type of philosophy, it will be phenomenal for the world. If that it's, is like, they're looking for a reason to say yes, not a reason to say no. I think that's the most important, like you do not have to build anything to help change the world, to help save the world on it. Like we are at such a critical point of, um, competing priorities and losing sight of like what has gotten us to the point where we are all like comfortable and happy and live in truly like if you don't think this is the best time to be alive in human history, like we do not share a worldview, you know, like th there's a lot of doom and gloom in the news, but that's because they're incentivized for doom and gloom. Like we are, there's less poverty at a higher level. There's less war. There's less violent crime. There's more literacy, um, all over the world. Like some of the gaps in the relative stuff in pockets is, is, trending a different way like we are not moving towards necessarily like a purely homogenous thing especially in america recently but 
that is solvable with technology. Like we, that gives us the abundance to continue. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. Um, that when, when we create more, we create more for everybody. And that is where technology comes from. Like without the things that we have built in the past, without, you know, oil pipelines and nuclear power and cars and planes, like, like, uh, agriculture at a huge scale. Like we are, we have scarcity that leads to people turning on each other. That leads to fighting. Like our only choice for a happy future, I think is to continue to grow. And when you see how we've stifled our growth and ourselves with regulation, with short-term concerns about, you know, short-term unemployment of like, Oh, we can't have, we can't have like self-driving cars. Like what would the taxi drivers do? It was like, are you kidding me? Like 10 years ago when they were a concept, we were so excited about self-driving. Oh oh my God, these are going to save millions of lives. We have so many fatal, everybody knows somebody who's died in a car accident tragically. And now that we have self-driving cars 10 years later, this miracle of technology, like you can't find a positive headline about them. And I don't understand, yep. like, who are these people who are railing against self-driving cars? Like, we should be throwing parades in the streets um, and rushing out to buy them and celebrating them and having headlines. Uh, like, it is um, it is a crazy thing. I mean, thing. there's a lot of things. It, it, Eric, there's a lot of things which, and actually, this you're, you're just segueing the book so perfectly. Like, that, the biology is a whole section around press and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, public opinion. I, I think there's actually a lot of these topics. I, I would absolutely put self-driving cars in this topic, but in this uh, category. But there's a bunch of others where it's like if you pulled the average person and gave them the actual numbers, uh, I don't think you would even find less than 90% of people agreeing with a certain position. Like, you know, there's I mean, there's so many things like that. Like the uh, this is tied like very close to to TrueMed, but um, Callie, one of the co-founders. Um, did a big sort of public, like he went on kind of like a Twitter campaign mm -hmm. around uh, snap benefits being applied to sugary sodas. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's one of those topics where if you pull the average person, you would get 90% agreement on one side of being like, oh yeah, like why I'd rather that money go to like healthy drinks. Like we can incentivize healthy food for, for people. And that's like a good, that's like a good idea. Um, that probably have lead to a lot of benefits from, on many different levels. Yes, yes. Um, but but it lost in Congress so badly. Like it was like eighty to twenty. It wasn't even like oh, it's fifty one forty nine. It was it was um, just completely one direction versus the other. And I think I think that's when, an example of what biology calls like the holy lies, right? In like the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, how you can be? I think maybe I'll just take one second to explain that. But it's like. Holy lies work very well in the short term because you can bully or trick people into conforming with them. But in the medium or long term, they don't work. Your machines don't work. Your people don't work. You become poorer as a society. You're screaming these holy lies, but it doesn't matter because other societies who found real truths have exceeded you technologically and economically. That's why finding truths in a decentralized environment is important. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting... Like, I found that a really interesting idea too, right? Like capitalism outperforms communism because there's an incentive for truth and finding right. and reacting to the reality underlying it. Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, I think the like nutrition lobbying in particular is such like a, 
such a dishonor to our society. <laughs> like the school lunches, things, the like Coke lobby, oh, yeah. the snap like benefits for sugar. So like, it's just, um, it's, it's disappointing. It's kind of gross. Like the, 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 it's back to the moral case of like, can we do the things that are just like good for each other? Cause we know that they're right, please. Um, yeah. And there's, well, a, there's and I a think the unfortunate these. thing, right. It's like, I mean, the unfortunate thing is like, and this goes back to like what Balaji talks about with the press stuff. It's like, um, they'll use these short term attacks to try mm -hmm. to keep, you know, like the, I mean, Callie talked a lot about this, but like the NAACP is a huge partner of Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola is a huge donor to it. And mm -hmm. the reason is whenever this kind of stuff comes up, the NAACP and this, this, uh, you know, fact check me if you want, but like they will go after whoever attacks the snap benefits for Coke by saying it's racist policy. Really? And it's like a short-term attack, which is probably not sustainable long-term. It's, it's probably not sustainable long-term, but it's like in the short-term, it's going to keep the benefits renewing. And, you know, um, I mean, this is just one example, but I think Balaji also talks about like the FDA often gets influenced by this, like anything government related, I think gets influenced by yeah. public opinion, which makes the press kingmakers in a way. Um, but a I do think the improvements, like going back to optimism, they're, the hold on the public opinion is much less than it was, I would say, you know, 20 years ago. I hope that's true. Um, we got decentralized a little bit. Yeah, which which leads to different problems. Like now we have, you know, 100 voices to listen to. And we're not sure which ones are true <laughs> instead of like, yes. we have one voice, but we know it's kind of. It's kind of sus, um, <laughs> but there's so many, there's different forces at play too, right? Like, you know, there's the, there's the bureaucratic, you know, tendency to just a system tends to encroach, right? Like the systems Bible is one of my very favorite books. And it's like systems with goals tend to continue to pursue those goals, even if they're already accomplished, even if they're doing more damage by chasing them, like they take on a life of their own. And I think that's what you see to some extent in something like the FDA, right? Like the FDA is now even though it's full of good, probably well-intentioned people, it is yeah. just this runaway system that is its goal is to like perpetuate itself and stay big and stay slow and stay funded and keep those people like in jobs. Um, but it's kind of insane. If you think about the fact that we as Americans, like maybe with a terminal illness do not have the freedom to take an experimental cure that exists that might have the, even if it doesn't save us, it advances the science and the FDA can say, nope, you do not have the freedom to take that chance on saving your own life. And there's cases of these that have gone <laughs> to the Supreme court and it's, it's fucking insane. Um, you know, of all the things, I mean, that, that is literally what happened in my dad's case. That mm -hmm. is like, literally there was a phase three drug that he was not allowed to take because he didn't fall within the study, the study parameters, which were already set by that point where you, the, upper tier was 60 and uh he's 62 and so the company was like we just can't do this because it's not allowed like we're not allowed to include you in the study yeah but, uh, but you can bungee jump but you can skydive you can you know yep. you can drink yourself you can drive a car lot of tickets <laughs> yeah, yeah drive a car yeah it's the self-perpetuating thing i think i think that's actually a good uh like a system if you were designing the fda from scratch today with the goal of like, how do we advance medical science and save the lives of most Americans? Like, there's always this trade-off between, I hate putting it this way, but this is like the word that's coming to mind. Like 
the benefit and like the collateral damage mm-hmm. of it. And I think actually a great balance of that collateral damage and benefit is <clears throat> those with terminal diseases who are actively choosing to try something because it mu- you know gives them a 10% chance or a hope even that there's something out there for them. Um, is actually a great trade-off because otherwise they're going to die with no and nobody is benefiting yeah. from that at all, not even themselves and not medical science. And, and they're heroes for doing it, right? Like you know that is a that is a noble pursuit to try something new, to be the test pilot of a new craft. Like we used to salute those people. Like astronauts are heroes, test pilots are heroes. They're risk takers on behalf of society. Um, and I I think. You know, it seems like we've lost a little bit of that. Um, I hope we can inject some of it. I hope, you know, the, the combination of kind of the laws and the sanity and, um, yeah, I, I, you know, if you work at the FDA, please read this book. I, I, uh, I would <laughs> like to, to send this book to like every mayor um, in the United States, right? Like Apology talks about, idea. talks about mayors having a very specific like level of power to actually control their kind of like local you know, if you want to be like the drone capital, you want to attract all of the like drone innovation people um, and like start all those new companies, like you can, as a mayor, like craft some of those laws and attract those people and like pick an industry to become the hub of and innovate and bring those people in. Um, I think you saw that with self-driving actually. Phoenix um, was pretty quick to adopt that if I remember <laughs> correctly. That is actually the beauty of the American system, I think. Yeah. That is that is like something that is really nice that we have this, uh, I guess, federalism where the states have their own ability to do stuff outside of the federal government and municipalities do as well. It's definitely not like a one-size-fits-all approach to the whole country. And in some ways, that actually creates like a capitalism-type effect yeah. uh, within the country, which is actually really nice. Like you can only be wrong for so long like it will become very apparent over time. Like if you had the wrong philosophy, but you have a chance to course correct at that point. Yeah. And I, I think some of the things that we've been talking about that are like where innovation dies is actually where it's like really strong federal mandates which is FDA or the nuclear regulatory yep. commission. But you know, you, you like, I think marijuana is still federally illegal, but you see a bunch of States legalizing yep. it in different capacities and like every state can run their own experiment. Um, I, like, Bology doesn't talk about it very That's often. That's only because the like, federal government stopped enforcing it, though. Right. right. right? So basically, the federal true. government was like, we're not going to change the law, but we're going to just say, like, we're not going to go raid. You know, if you yeah. guys, if there's a weed store in California, like, we're not going to go raid that weed store. Yeah. And same thing with psychedelics. I think certain states are are decriminalizing it, at least. Um, I don't know if they've, I don't know if any state is like all out legalized. I haven't paid that much attention, but I know decriminalization has happened as well in, in like psilocybin and a couple other things. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's it's a great experiment, right? It's like I don't know if that's the right answer. I don't know if that's the wrong answer. It's like let's see what what happens. Yeah. <laughs> like try it out. Yeah, and th- that is why you know biology is not like wants to start a new country just to start a new country. Like he believes in the network state and sort of parallel institutions and exiting the establishment, quote unquote, because he's like we have to give technology a chance to thrive and grow and have a place to innovate. We, we deserve a place to go to take that experimental drug or to try that new, like that new plane or to build that nuclear reactor or whatever. And his belief and his 
work is around the thesis that like it's easier to build a new thing than to reform the existing thing. I think I, I don't know if he's correct. Like history will determine. I think both path, like any possible path towards a solution is worth pursuing and we should not fight about which one is right, but chase them all down at the same time because this is such an important thing to solve. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to, you don't have to like go join a network state, but just like whatever, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, like find ways to appreciate and respect the technology, vote for people who do involve it in your work, apply it, um, you know, especially with like the AI tools are like a really simple example, almost no matter what your job is, there's something that's been recently invented that can help you do it faster and more efficiently. And even that little step in your domain at your desk, like helps move humanity forward and creates more abundance for everybody else and shows other people the way. What, um, if you don't mind talking about it a little bit more, I know it's apologies concept, not yours, but, um, talk about the network state a little bit more. Yeah. So he, um, the, the network state conference was like just yesterday as we're recording this and it's a book that he's written as well. So if you want to go deep on it, um, he's got a, he's got a long podcast with Lex Freeman. He's got a, a podcast about the network state with Tim Ferriss. Um, but this is just a very high level thing. Like, Bology's contention is basically that technology needs a place and innovation needs, we, we need to expect, we need many more frontiers with much more aggressive experimentation in order to kind of keep humanity moving forward. And that one way to create that space is to basically become like an independent country. And that one way to do that, uh, the path to doing that is basically to collect people, use the internet, collect people by interest and, by the principles that they're dedicated to or the experiment that they want to run or the kind of life that they want to live, collect, you know, a thousand or 10,000, a hundred thousand, a million of those people and slowly take steps towards creating physical locations where they gather. So maybe, you know, you've got a community of 10,000 people that gets together once a year. Um, maybe there's a hundred thousand people in the network state community that then, um, you know, take over an apartment building in Spain or something. And maybe then maybe you get to the point where there's like 10 buildings around the country. And then maybe they buy a tract of land from a com from a country. Like there are literally people ex doing all different forms of these experiments. Like Cabin Dow has sites all around the country. Praxis is looking to buy a huge tract of land from an existing country and set up a new place that has its own sort of rules and governance. Um, Bology is starting a network state that you can sort of become a part of and become a citizen of. There's people working on citizenship uh, liquidity, so you can kind of move between multiple countries and make it easy to get different passports. Um, all with this sort of goal. It doesn't have to be even a technology goal. Like you could have a super like, you know, paleo or traditional, like a let's say like a mega health network state. You want to really live the healthiest possible life and you only want to hang out with other people who want to live your mega super healthy healthiest possible optimized life because it actually gets much easier to stay compliant when you live in a place that only has healthy organic you know non-gmo food um, and you only hang out with people that also eat those things and exercise four hours a day and whatever all of the rules are that you want to live by collect all those people find a way to live together establish the rules of your society um I don't know. That's the like two minute version, but there's a, it's a fascinating vision for moving forward in a lot of different directions. Um, it's just, it's cool brain food. Um, 
I encourage totally. you to check, check, check out a podcast, like hear him talk about it in a little more detail and then check out the book if you feel interested in it. His book, The Network State. I, I don't go do too deep into it in the anthology of biology just because he already has a book about like that specific concept in depth. Um, it's alluded to, but it's I, I don't like explain it in detail in here. Yep. Um, actually, one thing you were, as you were talking that just sparked a, a thought was like the United States was uh, kind of ascended through a few, a few almost like some things that were destiny in, in the in the sense of like location where it is on, on earth, it's natural resources. Um, and then there were a few sort of like, I think very smart decisions that were made in terms of how it's governed and the structure of like its politics. I think that that's like, it did some really smart things there, but that was when the world's frontier was geographic. Mm-hmm. And like, I wonder kind of moving forward, right? Like you may have a country hit well above its weight in terms of geography if it makes the right decisions in terms of like the technological frontier. S- Singapore is like, doing it this does right it. now. Yep. 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 So yeah, it's just like that whole network state idea. It's like takes the feudalism or uh, not feudalism, federalism yeah. of uh, of the US system and like extends it much, much like it, it, it takes it to the nth degree, basically. It's um, even a similar from where we how we use it today. Yeah, it's even a similar story, actually. Um, to riff on that, like the US not only had frontiers, like literally physically, but it also attracted like for generations, the most Frontier ambitious, yeah, yes. the most ambitious immigrants who were either escaping from something, trying to amb- make a new life, or were just adventurous and wanted to leave and come to this promise of this new world. And, you know, we, um, at least the feeling in America a little bit today is that like, it's not like, I would love a highly meritocratic, like very ambitious immigration policy, you know, where we're like actively recruiting the best in the world to come here. They used to want to come here by default. And that's a little less true than it used to be. And if America wants a bright future, I feel like we need to um, sort of regain respect for how much immigrants have created in this country and given to all the rest of us and like continue to do, honestly, like every generation. Um, And, you know, we, we still have so much going for us. There's still so many beautiful things about America. But we, um, this is that was one of a few examples where I think we're losing respect for uh, losing context of like the things that made us great in the first place. Totally, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a great point, and that's why and I'm dumb. running for president. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, maybe mayor would be more fun. It would definitely be more fun. <laughs> you it could definitely, definitely, you could do fun. a lot more cool stuff. Um, but, uh, last thing before we wrap up, that was actually a hilarious segue because I was going to ask how this book has influenced you personally, like in terms of your day-to-day life and career choices and health and all the other areas, obviously that are talked about in the book. Um, so clearly you're running for president. So it's, it's influenced you a lot. <laughs> I would never have been become president without this book. Um, no, it's, it is, uh. I mean, it's influenced me a lot. I mean, what the, the process of working on these books is so in-depth. Like, it's so immersive. And I really set out to change who I am in the process of writing this book. And I think most authors do. Like, when they when they really do the work, they become the book in, in some really important ways. And I, the first book absolutely changed my life. Like, the, the Almanac and Naval changed who I was the process of writing the book changed who I was. The 
process of publishing it and getting it out into the world changed so many external factors about my life. Like it led directly to writing the second book. It led to me starting the fund. It led to me starting the podcast. It is basically the sole reason that I have the job that I have now, which I became CEO of the company that published both of my books, um, which is like kind of a crazy story, but it, the people that I've met, the doors that have opened, um, it is so, it is so incredible. Like what a book can do to attract into your life, the kind of people that you want to associate with. And you know, what, what could be a better filter than somebody's willing to sit down and spend five ideas or five hours with all of the ideas that you most respect and most resonate with. And then they come out of that and they like want to talk to you about them. Um, and it's, it is so remarkable. And I hope that that just kind of keeps continuing. Like I, I can't, um, you know, the, the process of writing it and building is transformative. The process of publishing is transformative in a totally different way. I'm, I'm very excited to, you know, have gone through this twice now. I'm already working on the third. Like it's very, it's very addictive, um, to kind of get into this. It's so rewarding to like see the, I mean, millions of people have read the Almanac and all and the DMS that I get about, you know, who has changed what and what the outcomes have been. And, um, is, is unbelievable motivation to kind of keep continuing both as a writer and as a, you know, as a publisher now, like I, I think books are sacred. I love them. Um, I have, they're, my apartment is covered in books. Uh, and like <laughs> so much of what I am comes from books. And I, I, you know, think that they are the most Lindy media format we have. Um, there's beautiful things happening in podcasting. I love technology, but books are very old and very, um, beautiful technology that still can transform so many lives. Um, and there's still something really special about them. Yeah. I 1000% agree with you on that. It's like, there's something about, I was actually literally just telling this to my wife last night. Like I, uh, I feel like this happens so rarely now, but I remember maybe 10 years ago, you would find like some random blog that had yeah. existed on the internet for like right it's it, like the person might not even ha, might not have even updated it for like several years but it has like hundreds of posts and you just deep dive into it um and like it happened to me the other day or i found this random blog like somebody linked me to a post and i was like wow this blog is awesome and i just like started like diving into it and i had missed that feeling i feel like it's been years since i've had that feeling but i think a book is actually like a well-written book is actually a version of that it's actually a better version of that because the author has also constructed how they want you to come across the narrative, like come across the ideas. So it's not just, Hey, I clicked on a random blog post and like I'm clicking around the site. There's something fun to that. It's like exploratory. Mm -hmm. But I think with the book, it's like, um, especially, you know, the way that you've written your two books, it's like, you can truly get immersed in this mindset. And if you want to put yourself in that mindset, you can almost proactively get into that book um, to, to, you know, kind of like you can almost sigh up yourself yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah. yeah. In a variety of ways too. Like Nivy gave me this advice when I was writing the, um, Almanac and Naval. Nivy is Naval's business partner in Angelist and he's a great writer. He wrote almost everything that's on the Venture Hacks blog, um, which is kind of the precursor to Angelist. And he said, great books are fractal. And I was like, 
sat there silently for like nine minutes thinking about it um, and figured out how to like, how to incorporate that in, into the book. And so you'll, you'll, I, to me, there's four layers, you know, you can, you can spend 30 seconds reading the table of contents and you will learn something. You will take something away. You will get an overview of what's there, but you will also like hear statements, you know, like uh, technology is the driving force of history. That is a chapter name. Value creation comes from technology, right? Um, not life extension, youth extension. Like if you spend 30 seconds just reading the table of contents, you will carry something away. Uh, if you spend five minutes just flipping through, you can read the big pull quotes and see the graphics and take away some of the big ideas, the summarizing things. If you spend five hours reading it, the full copy, the full body of the book, you will have that experience. Or you can go to the back where there's a recommended reading section, which is all of Balaji's most sort of formative strongly recommended books through history, through, you know, things for founders, um, about technology, you know, technical books for learning, learning technology, learning math. And you can spend 50 hours or 500 hours with those books and really like install the software that Balaji has in his head in your own. Right. And no matter what level you want to engage with, however often, like you have all of those options. And that's a thing, like that's part of the magic of like books as a technology, that you know we take for granted that's such a good way of phrasing it i'm gonna clip that for sure because that is so uh so true and also that's such a great point about like the best books mm -hmm. you can read them on multiple layers like i i even i feel that away that way about like a lot of taleb's books as well like there's layers to it even you know i don't think it's quite to the level that you're talking about where it's fractal but there's definitely layers to reading it and you know, it's the same thing with like, especially when you have, uh, let's say Taleb has a series of four books, you can install the Taleb software in your brain by just like diving deep yeah. into those. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Deep, deep. Uh, you got yeah, to swim down to get, uh, to get that Eric, software. So where it, no, for sure. I think that's, and that's true for like on, on many different levels too. Like I love reading. So at the end of your, uh, at the end of uh, the anthology of, of Balaji, the the last section where exactly what you were just referring to with all the books that he's recommending. I love seeing sections like that in books like this, where it's like, yeah, I might not pick up every single one of those books, but there are books in there where like I've had, okay. Like what I used to love uh, math as, as like a kid, as you might imagine. And like a lot of, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people pro probably hated it or loved it. And a few months ago, I was actually thinking about that. I was like, I kind of miss like doing math. Yeah. Like, I know it sounds ridiculous, but like there are there, there's like times where you're like, oh, that would actually like I wonder if I even remember any of it. Like it would be, you know, it'd be interesting to like do a problem. But then I was like, where do you even do that? Like, do you just go <laughs> online and like, like, I don't even know where to start. So like uh, and same thing with like some of the other books that he'd mentioned. Uh, I forget what it, the the company was called, but it was like these like workbooks. There's uh, one for accounting. Sean's for, outlines. Like, yeah. Sean's outlines. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, that seems actually like a pretty cool thing yeah. where it's like, okay, yeah, I haven't taken accounting in a long, long time. Like, do I still remember anything? <laughs> like, yeah. it's just an interesting idea. If you're going to sit there um, and like do Sudoku. Yeah, so just seeing these like recommendations. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. It's like a game in some ways. Yeah. Um, uh, cool. Well, Eric, we got we to gotta wrap up. But uh, where can people find the book? Uh, where can people read more about this? Where can they follow you? 
Um, buy the book straight on Amazon. That's the easiest way to do it. Um, all my links and stuff are at ejorgensen.com. You can find the fund, you can find the podcast, find my blog, newsletter, um, all that kind of stuff. If you want to go straight to the book websites, it's navalmanac.com and bologyanthology.com. Great, great domains. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool, man. Well, I will get a lot of these links that we talked about in the show notes. Um, this was awesome. Uh, actually, I was curious. Like, I know I said we we're wrapping up, but one last thing I just realized we didn't talk about. Uh, have you gotten your podcast on Fountain or on like the value for value stuff? I do not know yet. Okay. I, w- we will talk about that. This podcast yeah. is on, it's on, well, every podcast is on Fountain. So it's like okay. uses the public feeds. Um, but it supports like podcasting 2.0, which has the ability for the audience to support you. Oh, cool. Uh, using, using Bitcoin. And it's like with my, it uses lightning. So it's like, you can, you know, support it with a hundred sats. Awesome. If you, want. you can do 50 sats if you want. There's like, I don't even know what the minimum would be, but I mean, I've had people send in like super small amounts and it's, it's super cool to see. Like, uh, the idea is that you can stream per minute you actually listen, yep. or you can just send like a little boost. Very um, cool. And it's it's like it's not really even about like the fact you're getting the the money. The other cool thing is like you can split it with like let's say you have a guest on like on this one, you can like sync up a little wallet, uh, any lightning wallet, and then basically if somebody puts money into the episode, like boosts the episode with you know X amount of sats, cool. it'll auto split between my wallet and your wallet. Like it's. It's actually like super cool. It's like almost a decentralized Patreon uh, yeah. in some ways, like a little different than Patreon or Substack, but it's a, and it's an open source protocol. So it's not specific to Fountain. Fountain's just an app that taps into the protocol. Um, any any podcast player in theory could could do this. That's very cool. I did not realize that had been built yet. Um, my buddy Sky King like pitched, like explained that vision to me very clearly, like especially in audio. <laughs> I think on a podcast episode, he's one of my very early podcast episodes and he had his incredible vision around that. Um, and laid out a ton of that. So it's cool to see that that stuff is getting built. Like that's fascinating. Yeah. And it, it used to be, so when I onboarded made you think to it, like two years ago, it was super annoying to set it up. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, it was like, I mean, it sounds super sketch, but it's like, there was like a, (laughs) you had to like contact like someone on telegram and like, like it was like, (laughs) it's like true frontier type stuff at that point. Now it's actually like pretty simple. Uh, like fountain has made tools to make it easier for podcasters to do it where you don't need to be like technical and like editing code and like doing stuff to actually onboard onto this. It's like as simple as setting up like a you know, Spotify for podcasters account or something cool. like Love it. they've made it, they've tried to make it really simple. Yeah. So it's, it's exactly like fountain is basically one of the companies in the space. That's the one that I've spent the most time with, but I think there's a few others as well. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool platform and it's like a true, like front, it feels like you're on the frontier kind of thing. So awesome. yeah, I'll send you more about it and I'll, I'll message you after about setting up a split um, for this episode, which is where I was, I was going with it. So <laughs> nice. nice. Send us yeah. those sets just yeah. for experimental purposes for yep. technology. Do it for technology. Yeah. Just for experimental. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Um, this is super fun. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Well, we'll definitely have you on again for the Elon Musk book. I'm working on it. Maybe in three years, <laughs> three years or less. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, thanks, Eric.